Connell Tribune, Thursday the 23rd of April 2020. Coronavirus claims the life of an old comrade. As I write this on the day that an old friend from Belfast was buried, there's a certain melancholy around. Obviously because of the strange and unprecedented situation we find ourselves in, I wasn't able to travel to Belfast for the funeral. But then neither were close friends, extended family, neighbours and old comrades in the 70s. You see, Johnny Burns was tested positive last week with COVID-19. And with having various underlying conditions, the end was inevitable. Johnny passed sadly and quietly. As his life ebbed away, his daughter couldn't even hold his hand. The man she loved, such as the awful situation we find ourselves in. In the quiet hours, as a word processes and thinking of Johnny... This is also a celebration of his life, and especially for his daughter Anne, who was always there for him. I had known Johnny for almost 50 years, since 72. Although we hadn't met up for many, many years, as my domicile in Donegal and Galway had estranged me from my home city for over 40 years. But like all friendships from your youth, they tend to be special and long-lasting. You mightn't meet for a decade, and then it's just like it was yesterday. Johnny and I grew up in different parts of Belfast, but our families moved to the new Turf Lodge estate in the early 60s, on the western edge of the city, just nestled beneath the Black Mountain. We actually lived just round the corner from each other, he in the Crescent and I in the gardens, both Norglen. There were four houses and a terraced row where we lived, then a small entry took you through to the Crescent where Johnny lived. So we were only a stone's throw away, which is a useful analogy for the times that were coming. Also the same entry in 87 would see my brother in law Kevy murdered by a British soldier there. Shot six times in the back as he attempted to escape the night the Gibraltar Thee returned. Indeed that little entry provided a quick escape route for many from those same foreign soldiers on many an occasion. Yes, that little entry would prove to be a gateway to heaven. I didn't actually know Johnny's who grew up he wasn't in our gang, as they say. My first pals, Jimmy Bell, Kieran Blake, Joe Conroy, Tiny Mulgrew and Norman Campbell. We learned how to play the beautiful game in the streets. Then the formative teen- early teenage years, Big Hack, Patty Smith, Mickey Kearney, Kevy, Marty Kavanagh, Jimmy Clark, Shawnee Seaton and others. We discovered other things in football like cigarettes and girls. Didn't really know what to do with Ayler. Thank goodness, thank goodness I give up the cigarettes. It was a swing in 60s, the Beatles, Celtic and Man United, Vietnam, Neil Armstrong, then Civil Rights, Burntollet, the Battle of the Bogside in Bombay Street. We were thrown into a virtual Armageddon. We were over time, either lucky or unlucky, depending on your perspective. Many of us became engaged what became the armed struggle. It might have started with Molotov cocktails, although a bit fancy for working-class Belfast. Ours were just the mommy's milk bottles, liberated petrol from the local garage with yesterday's Irish news to ignite it. But when General Freeland said it was shoot-to-kill time, well, we didn't have many options, but I suppose to shoot back. Now, I'm conscious I've been brought up in a society where the general consensus was, whatever you say, say nothing. One needs to remember that old adage, but I suppose it's a long time ago, we're all getting on, and indeed many sadly have left us. So what I'll say is more a reminiscence down memory lane, and a little tribute to some great guys I spent years of captivity with in the 70s.
The Battle of St. Matthews, the Curfew, Interment, Ballamurphy Massacre and finally Bloody Sunday. These events created the conditions for what became the Long War. And our generation were willing participants. We weren't committed revolutionaries in the Che Guevara mode, just ordinary urban working class kids who embraced something extraordinary in our young lives. As all who have survived thus far and lived through the early days of the conflict know the turf was a battlefield with the home coal community rejecting British troops in our streets. Street rioters, old women banging bin lids, volunteers taking the fight to the enemy, families housing billets to those in the run, wee women providing tea and Barney Hughes baps to the volunteers and standby houses, the people who gave their unqualified support throughout, the unsung heroes, and you dared to call me a terrorist had no place here. Many of the guys etched in my memory have left us. Marty Forsyth, who we provided the Guard of Honour and defied the Paris. Martin Skillen, Brendan O'Callaghan, Tommy Downey, Sean Friars, Mickey Flanagan, Jerry Kearns, Tommy Smith, Ian McGuire, Goosey McGowan, Kevy et al. Many before their time. Most were in the cages the night we burned the bloody place down. Some in deteriorating health, Jim Scullion been one. Life can be so cruel. They were all friends and comrades. Sadly, this week saw the demise of one long-standing friend, Johnny Burns, following quickly on the demise of Eamon Maguire and Jerry Kearns. One can feel one's own mortality closing in, the journey of life all embracing. Back in 72, on the night of 28th of August, I met Johnny for the first time. I was just returned from Donegal, where I'd spent the ceasefire period. It was just after Operation Motorman had cleared the barricades and free dairy in Belfast. I suppose with hindsight it wasn't a great career move coming back, but that's the way things were. Introductions were short and we were given all the instructions we needed and the wherewithal to go with them. Two para were based in Turf Lodge, which made for a logistical nightmare for us to move around the area. These guys were slightly psychopathic compared to your average King's Own Scottish border or Royal Green Jacket. Driving around in open-top jeeps and diving out if they came under fire and racing towards us, the mad fuckers hadn't read the script. This particular night our unit had decided to offer a sign of friendship to our friends from Aldershot, believing a device of meticulous ferocity, ferocity to await their regular nightly patrol. The plan on paper appeared quite simple. Johnny and I and another volunteer, who shall remain nameless, were instructed to place the IED in a garden where the sun would never set for two para. Unfortunately, our scouts were having a smoke or chatting up some come-to-man girl because instead of us being forewarned of the arrival of the aforementioned heroes of Arnhem, they spotted us first. Luckily for the third member of our conspiracy, he had just left to get cigarettes and was never seen again. The first para who spotted us raised his SLR and shouted to get down the ground. For a millisecond, both Johnny and I made a move to exit stage left, but our legs were like lead, and probably if we had run, our bodies would have been full of lead as well. Several pars jumped the garden fence like an Olympic high jump athlete, made us lie down head to head, took off our shoes in case we had ideas of escaping, and proceeded to batter us with their rifles and size 10 army regulation boots, all the time referring to us as fucking Irish bastards, and several other adjectives not common in the Queen's English. As we lay in the garden, crowds gathered in their hundreds and soon a riot prevailed. 
The paras were waiting for the sires and to pick us up, but tempers flared as the wait went on. Johnny at one stage whispered to me, fuck this, I'm going to run. He jumped up, but a half a dozen big thick paras battered him to the ground. It was a valiant, if an elusive attempt by the quiet man that Johnny was. Eventually the armoured personnel carry arrived and we were whipped off to an army camp in Spring Martin. I must say lying on the floor in the back of that Saracen with ten psychotic paras for company was the most frightening experience of my life. Getting battered around the head and a rifle stuck up your arse by guys you had intended wouldn't see tomorrow wasn't a pleasant experience. Well, they might have felt the same if our plan had prevailed. Throwing us out of the peg at Spring Martin, loyalists were cheering and the paras threatened to hand us over to them, like Christians to the lands in ancient Rome. Not a pretty thought. Inside the para barracks, the I.O. was in no mood to exchange pleasantries. I'd actually been lifted a week earlier and told him I'd finished with all this stuff after being released from internment. Now he wasn't impressed. Because of our situation being a fait accompli, there wasn't much need for interrogation as they had all the evidence they needed and we were in court in the morning where we refused to recognise the court and the judge sent us packing. For me, back to the cages I'd left three months earlier in internment. Coincidentally, I'd visited Jim Smith, Hack's brother, with him the previous week. He was a big stick as they all were then before morphing into the IRSP in later years. And who was the first person I met when we reached cage six? Yes, Jim, who gave me a warm, if somewhat sardonic, welcome. Johnny and I settled in. Guys were arriving every day. The attrition rate after Motorman was phenomenal. Tommy Gorman, who had escaped from the Maidstone, was in the next bunk. Bobby Sands, Martin Meehan, Jim Scullion, Tommy Downey, and the boys caught at Barney Hughes Bakery just hours before the first ceasefire, trying to relieve Barney of some dough. They were all there. It was like a turf lodge reunion. We were only in cage six a week when a rumpus developed with the screws and they called the army in, and we were frog-marched through ranks of soldiers swinging battens into our huts to lick our wounds, all because there was no boiling water for the evening tea. A few months later, we were all in Crumlin Road awaiting trial when really sad news came in that Johnny's nephew, his sister Ina's wee son, had been shot dead, sitting on a wall outside the house. Heartbreaking news for the family and to this day never confirmed who fired the shot, despite suggestions that undercover soldiers were in the area. Our trial day arrived and we were brought down the old tunnel between jail and court, where Fenian rebels had walked since famine times. Once again we refused to recognise the British court and received six years for our efforts. We refused to stand for the judge and threw her deposition papers at him as he threatened to double her sentence for contempt. The screws dragged us out down below to await the next years of our young lives in the cage. At this stage on reflection it doesn't appear much but six years when you're 18 is a long time. As we sat in the cell awaiting transport to HMP Long Cache, Johnny and I talked about what lay ahead. Six years for fuck's sake we thought would be old men when we got out or that the struggle would be over. That and many other things crossed our minds as the old saying goes it seemed like a good idea at the time. In the cage we were sent to cage 18 at the top end of the camp, next door to the UVF cage 19 where Gusty Spence and Plum Smith were in situ. Plum was an interesting character and I got to know him well over the years talking across the wire. Our first few years were spent there a maximum many hour down in New Lodge men. 
Hugh Dorn was the only other Turf Lodge guy. Over in 16 were the Barney Hughes 6, Jim, Tommy, Jimmy, Mickey, Jerry and Sean. In 17, Brendan McGowan, Big Jerry, The Dark, Bobby Sands and Dennis Donaldson. 20 held Jimmy Gray, Shawnee Seaton and Pat Shannon, I think. Down in 13 was Sean and Tom McGill and several others if my memory others my memory fails me on. And of course down the entire end there were many more. Sean Fitzsimmons, Jim McGuire, Sean McGill, Eddie Brophy, a generation of young guys who would never have seen the inside of a prison only for the conflict. Indeed, at one stage in 75, Apre the Burning, there was a veritable butcher's dozen from Turf Lodge in the rebuilt Cage 10. Jerry Scullion and myself, Oliver Burns, Pat Shannon, Frankie Orman, Shawnee Seaton, Lawrence Donnelly, and then the six we've now lost, Hugh Dorn, Eamon McGuire, Sean Fries, Tommy Smith, Jerry Kearns, and now Johnny, all passed from this world. The years rolled by, interspersed with the odd riot, escape, Irish language classes, making harps and other handicrafts, reading Marx and James Connolly and trying to find out why we were there in the first place. On 15th of October, 74, we burned the place to the ground, fought the Brits for six hours the next day. I was with Johnny on the pitch as we camped around the embers of the burning cage huts and waiting, waited overnight like a German peasant army in the 1500s. In the morning it resembled more like wounded knee as the army prepared to fight us to a standstill while dropping CR gas from helicopters. Huey Dorn lost an eye after being hit with a plastic bullet point blank. They were tough times, but they were a great spirit of camaraderie which brought us through everything and indeed sustained the boys who followed us in the next decade in the hits blocks. Education was always a big thing in the cages. In our last year together, there was a big emphasis on setting up a template for community councils on the outside and created a sustainable political party to complement the armed struggle. Each area set up his own group within the cages and myself, Johnny and Huey, the Turf Lodge group. It was the beginning of a politicisation process which marked and degraded their emphasis after the hunger strikes. The theory being that even if the army and RUC removed armed activists, there'd still be political activists within the community. That legacy being the overwhelming success of Sinn Féin in 2020 in both the six counties and the Republic. I can't recall if Johnny was overtly political, but we had a great wee debates about how we would change the world after we were released. As release date neared towards the summer of 76, it was a feeling that something surreal was happening in our lives. We had one last concert at Easter and with many in the cage due for release, there was a forlorn feeling that this was a moment in time which wouldn't be repeated. We knew that possibly we might never see many of the boys again, so we had a great night of music, poetry, skits, recitations, the proclamation read and Aaron Nevein sang. It was a swan song for the boys of the old brigade. On the 10th of May, Johnny and I said our goodbyes to our friends in Cage 10. These were guys we'd shared the previous years with through riots, burning the camp, drilling in the yard, lectures in the huts, making and drinking homemade potching, encouraging political debate, pondering what the future held for us. On a personal level, the whole time we were there, Johnny and I never had a bad word between ourselves. He was a genuine guy, softly spoken, always had the hair long and liked a wee bit of Led Zeppelin, I think. 
We gathered up our little bag of stuff that sunny May morning, made our way out towards the gate where the screws were waiting. One last look around and all the boys had come out to wish as well. And then we were through the gate. I purposely never looked back and swore I'd never be back again. I presumed Johnny echoed the feeling. We made our way to reception, filled in the necessary release forms and then taken to the car park where my dad and sister were waiting and Johnny's sister, Ina. Ironically, during the hugging and greeting, my dad took a few photos unknown to us, but then we noticed he was missing. Half an hour later, he returns. The Brits had arrested him for taking the photos, developed them and realising they were just happy families rather than anything to damage security. They sent him packing, warning him to leave the camera behind next time. He needn't have bothered. Neither he nor I would ever be back again. Johnny and I and the folks headed down on the PDF bus and a great welcome from the Cattlebrewer band and a tearful reunion with Mum and Johnny's folks. Then up to the Marty for Sai Club and the traditional crate of Guinness for returning POWs. We sank a few and probably half pissed after so many years sabbatical from the demon drink. In the evening, Shauna Walsh and Evelyn Glenhomes arrived and took us over to Andytown to meet up with Johnny's brother Jimmy who was on the run after escaping from the cage previously. We had a short reunion which was sentimental for the two brothers as Jimmy was walking a fine lane in freedom. Then back to a bit of a party in the wee, to the wee hours. The summer morphed into winter and we got on with life and tried to stay out of a return to Long Cash. Times were still bad if not worse than when we went in. So much for our thoughts that the struggle would be over when we got out. Johnny and I plus many other ex-Cash men talked it over and what the future held. Some threw themselves back into armed struggle, some went their own way. There was no pressure on anyone. Before the summer was out, Joey Sorsner and Frankie Fitzsimmons who were in Cage 10 were killed in a premature explosion of the gas works. They were only out six months. Then, in that horrific incident in Andytown, Danny Lennon, another cash man, was shot dead by the army and his car careered out of control, killing the Maguire children. It was a terrible day which heralded the peace people, but ignoring the reality that a dead man can't drive a car. The death of the children's mother by suicide a few years later compounded the whole tragic incident. And a little anecdote from the time we saved Maria Corrigan and Betty Williams from a virtual lynching one night in the estate when they refused to condemn the army for murdering 13-year-old Brand Stewart. They were difficult times back in the 70s. A few years later, Johnny and I had a pardon of the ways, metaphorically speaking. The future looked bleak for me. It appeared going back to jail or even death was the inevitable outcome. So I knew domicile back into Donegal where my mum hailed from. I only met Johnny occasionally after that, probably only a few times as life ticks over. Donegal's only a few hours away, but to be honest it might as well have been in China the way things were. Just recently I had received bad news here in Galway where I live now. Both him, Maguire and Jerry Kearns passed away. It was a shock, boys of the same age if not younger. Guys Johnny and I shared the cages with. There's no doubt it brings your own mortality into sharper focus. Now, just within the last few months, Johnny's daughter Anne made contact with me through social media after I'd written something and posted photos of Johnny and I in the cages. I was shocked to find out that he wasn't in great shape and had several underland problems. Then the news came the nursing home where he was living at five deaths a week ago. 
It was ominous and the inevitable ending was confirmed with a phone call from Jerry Scullion and a sad message from Anne. I'm not ashamed to say it, I had prayed for him last week and that morning I shed a tear. Johnny was a good friend and a loyal comrade. We'll never see each other again, but when this present crisis is over, I know I'll make the drive to Belfast and walk through the cemetery to visit his grave, along with Jerry and Amons. I know it's the least I could do. Sleep easy, dear friend.